Welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Chapter 120 The Rise of the Macedonians. Theophilus was dead. The new emperor was a two year old boy. The Basileus, Michael III, obviously could not rule, so his mother Theodora and some good advisers ruled for him. The first thing they did was finally put an end to iconoclasm. Icons were brought back, and a new patriarch called Methodius was put in place. Iconoclasm was, this time, gone for good. When Theophilus died, iconoclasm in the empire died with him. The dead emperor's wife Theodora. It seems that empresses liked to be called Theodora. The legacy of Justinian was clearly still alive and well. Was an iconoduel herself. During her husband's reign, she had kept this well hidden, but now he was no more, she could reverse once and for all this perceived heresy. The previously exiled iconophile monks were brought back, and the veneration of icons was formally declared fine and dandy on the 10th of March 843. All iconoclast texts were ordered destroyed. It seems that Theodora was carrying out the restoration as a result of genuine religious belief, as she had Theophilus formally, posthumously pardoned for his iconoclasm. This meant that her toddler son, Michael, would not be stained by association. This final yes to icon veneration was okay with pretty much everyone. The only person who suffered badly was our old friend, poor old Constantine V. The great iconoclast tomb was broken into again, except this time it was destroyed. It seems that Constantine Capronimus just couldn't be left to be dead in peace. The reasons for the iconoclasm of the Byzantine Empire which held sway on and off between 730 and 843, were far broader than simply being about the formality of Christian religion. Holy images were turned on when the empire was under severe threat from external forces. When the threat diminished, the icons were brought back. Constantine Capronimus, the arch-iconoclast, won battle after battle. In the eyes of the soldiers, he was invincible, and his invincibility must have had something to do with God, and therefore God was against the icons but the empire always returned to its icons. The people, apart from the military, never really accepted that icons should go, and many were simply hidden to be miraculously rediscovered when the situation changed. Women, particularly it seems, were loath to give up their icons, and it's surely no coincidence that the formal reinstatement of their veneration was brought about, both times, by women. Irene reversed the decrees of Leo III and Constantine V, and Theodora, wife of Theophilus, did similarly to finally end iconoclasm in 843. Theodora and the regents for Michael III ruled well, except for their persecution of a group of strange Christians called the Paulicians. The Paulicians lived in Armenia and were a bit odd. They were iconoclasts, but they also didn't believe in baptism, marriage, the sign of the cross or most of the Bible. Still, persecuting them was a bad idea, as they joined the Arabs in attacking the empire. The empire, though, was becoming stronger, and by 863, the army had scored some significant victories over the Muslim forces. Once he was old enough, the emperor, Michael III, led some of the campaigns himself, and showed himself to be a brave soldier and reasonably good commander. By this time, of course, the regency had ended. Theodora's brother, Bardas, had managed to persuade the emperor to remove his mother from power, and now he was the power behind the throne. Theodora and her daughters, Michael's sisters, were sent to a monastery in 857. Despite being courageous on the battlefield, Michael was, like many other young emperors before him, weak and immature. He let himself be ruled by his mother, 
and then after she was removed he let himself be ruled by Bardas. The empire was generally peaceful in the early and middle parts of the reign of Michael III. The only real trouble during this period was in the church. In 847, Patriarch Methodius died, and he was replaced by Ignatius, who was the brother of former Emperor Michael Rangabi. Ignatius was unpleasant and not very clever, but he was a fanatical iconoduel. More than this though, and against the feelings of most of the churchmen and people of the empire, he was happy to recognise the Pope as being the most important person in the whole Christian church. The other leaders of the church in Constantinople didn't agree, and they began to follow their leader, a man called Photius. In 858, Bardas and Photius managed to have Ignatius deposed and exiled by inventing a crime which the poor patriarch hadn't really committed. The Pope sent some representatives to Constantinople to investigate the affair. Photius was a clever and charming man, and he managed to persuade the envoys that Ignatius should never have been patriarch anyway. The envoys signed the document and went home. The Pope was furious, and in 863 excommunicated Photius, who excommunicated the Pope right back. This caused a great split between the churches of Rome and Constantinople, which is called the Photian Schism. In 860, while the battles between the churches were going on, the people of Constantinople suffered a rather different but equally unpleasant experience. On the 18th of June, a fleet of 200 ships arrived from the depths of the Black Sea, and the sailors proceeded to burn, loot and pillage every town and village they came upon. These raiders were probably descended from Norsemen. They'd been seen in ones and twos in the capital before in recent years. It seemed that they had founded a city on the Dniepa River, which they were now using as a base to launch raids. After this massive assault on the towns and villages of the empire, they simply turned around and went back to their city. The city they returned to was called Kiev, and the people called themselves the Rus. Eventually their descendants would come to inhabit the largest country in the world, a country we now call Russia. After the schism, Michael, Bardas and Photius decided they needed to make sure the rest of the people in the Balkans, inside and outside the empire, followed Christianity, and in particular they followed Orthodox Christianity, just like they did in Constantinople. They converted the Bulgars under the Khan Boris, and they sent a missionary called Cyril to convert the Slavs. But the Pope, similarly enthused, sent someone to convert the Slavs to Roman Catholicism. So, who won? Did the Slavs become Orthodox or Catholic Christians? Well, because of Cyril, they became Orthodox Christians. The Catholics wanted church services held in Latin, but Cyril said, God's reign falls on all people equally, so all languages can be used to praise him. He even invented an alphabet for the Slavic people, so they could write down their own language. Slavic hadn't been written down before. This alphabet is still used in much of Eastern Europe today and is called the Cyrillic alphabet, after Cyril. The tide had definitely turned. Somehow the empire, shrunken though it was, had recovered its strength and somehow, amazingly, it was to get even stronger. Michael III, though, would not hang around long enough to see the golden age of the late empire begin. The emperor was still a young man, despite having reigned for over 20 years, and was starting to show that maybe he could rule well. But, as we know, the winner writes the history, and Michael was not going to come out as a winner. He's one of those people to whom history's been unkind because he was deposed, and his deposition needed to be justified. And that's the primary reason he's known to history as Michael the Drunkard. Michael III, Emperor of the Roman Empire, had been on the throne since the age of two, 
In 865 he was 25. He'd shown his skills on the battlefield and he was a physically powerful man. But, and it's a big but, he was a weak character. For the last 10 years the Empire had really been ruled by his uncle Bardas. Michael also liked to party, party hard and party often. In the end though, it wasn't the partying that did for him directly, it was the ambition and ruthlessness of a peasant from Armenia. Basil was born to Armenian parents sometime around 812. Early in his life he'd been captured by the Bulgars, but had escaped after reaching adulthood and made his way, carrying everything he owned in one sack, to Constantinople. Basil was completely unable to read and write and had no education at all, but he had two things going for him. He was amazingly strong and he was extremely good with horses. This combination of skills got him a job as a groom, someone who looks after horses in the imperial court. Basil spent many years tending the animals, but deep down inside he burned with ambition. He now worked for the emperor, but Basil wanted more than that, he wanted to be the emperor. And in fact, Basil wanted even more than that, he wanted to be a great emperor. And perhaps, even more than that, he wanted to be the new Justinian. But how could this ever happen? Basil was a peasant from Armenia. Sometime in the early 860s, Michael III was presented with a magnificent but completely uncontrollable horse. None of his friends could control it, but somebody mentioned there was a highly skilled groom working for a relative of his uncle Bardas, who could handle any horse. Basil was brought to the emperor, and just by whispering in its ear, he tamed the horse. This was the first time that Michael III met the man who would be responsible for his downfall. Basil and Michael became friends. Michael the Drunkard sometimes lived up to his posthumous nickname, and Basil, it seemed, also liked to party. Pretty soon, Basil was made Chamberlain and was organising more and more parties for the Emperor. He became the Minister of Fun. Only the Emperor's uncle Bardas seemed to see that maybe Basil was not quite all he seemed, and could be dangerous. He warned Michael that Basil was a lion who will devour us all. Michael, of course, took no notice. He was a weak man and tended to stick by his favourite person of the time, and right now, Basil the Macedonian was his favourite person. Bardas was right though. He was very, very right, and it was Bardas who was the first to suffer. In 866 he was to lead an imperial campaign to Crete to try to recover the island. Just before he went he learned of a conspiracy. The emperor and his chamberlain were plotting to have him killed. Bardas went to the emperor and asked if it were true. Both Michael and Basil denied it, and eventually Bardas accepted their word and prepared to leave for Crete. On the evening before he was due to leave though, Basil was warned they were still out to get him. He decided that again he would ask directly if it were true. At the end of a routine meeting with Michael, Bardas stood up. Is there any more business, or may I now leave on my campaign? he asked. He knew all was not well when he saw Basil give a signal. Quickly Bardas pulled out his sword and turned to face his enemy but it was too late. Basil, although now in his fifties, was still amazingly strong and quick. With one massive punch he knocked Bardas to the floor. Other conspirators rushed forward and finished the Emperor's uncle off. Michael just watched. Michael wrote to the Patriarch saying that Bardas had been executed for plotting against him. Rubbish of course, but it was accepted. Very soon afterwards, Basil was made Caesar, and then, in 866, was crowned co-emperor. Now it's possible that Basil would have remained happy with this situation for a while, but it soon became clear that Michael had found a new best friend, 
a man called Basiliskianus. Michael even tried to raise Basiliskianus to the purple, but had finally been convinced not to by Basil. Basil knew, though, that this would not be the last time this happened. He knew that Michael changed best friends nearly as often as most people change their socks, and he knew that either Michael had to go, or he had to go. Basil, of course, was keen it was not him that had to go. On the 24th of September, 867, Basil was eating with the Imperial family as usual. Once Michael was good and drunk, the Chamberlain made an excuse and went to the Emperor's bedroom. There he bent back the bolts on the door with his bare hands, so it couldn't be locked when Michael went to bed. Michael was too drunk to notice and fell asleep almost as soon as his head hit the pillow. In the middle of the night, Basil and some fellow conspirators crept into the room. One of them cut off the Emperor's hands but was too afraid to kill him. Basil's cousin stepped forward and finished the still-sleeping Basileus off. Michael III had been Emperor for 25 of his 27 years. Nobody really seemed too bothered and Basil the Macedonian was accepted as Emperor. In fact, Basil was welcomed as the new Basileus. The people realised the Empire could be passing through a period of crisis and needed a strong ruler. Basil, they thought, would be strong. And strong he was. Basil also had sons, so had a chance of founding a new dynasty. His eldest son, Constantine, was born in 859 to Basil's first wife, Maria. Michael had forced Basil to divorce Maria and marry one of his own girlfriends, a woman called Eudocia Ingerina. Basil's second and third sons, Leo and Stephen, were born before Michael was murdered and then Alexander followed in 870. After Basil died, his sons, grandson, great-grandson, great-great-grandsons and great-great-great-granddaughters would, among others, keep the Macedonian dynasty going for nearly 200 years. Two of his sons would become Basileus and a third would be Patriarch of Constantinople. This is how the story was written. This is how Basil would have wanted it to be written. There is a lot of doubt, though, about who the father of Leo and Stephen, and particularly Leo, actually was. When Leo was born, Michael the Drunkard was still alive and well. Basil's wife had been Michael's mistress, and it seems highly likely that she still was when she was married to Basil. After all, what's the best way of keeping your mistress close to you without attracting scandalous comments? Have her marry your best friend, of course. When Leo was born, Michael held public chariot races. It's widely believed now that Leo was Michael's son and not Basil's. If this is the case, then the glorious Macedonian dynasty was not descended from Basil the Macedonian, but from Michael the Drunkard, and therefore from Michael the Amorian. But history is written by the winners. Basil the Macedonian was the winner, and thus the Macedonian dynasty it is. Once he felt secure on his throne and had sorted out some of the internal problems, Basil was finally able to look outside his empire. Now, who had looked at the borders of his empire and decided it was time to conquer lost territory? Oh yeah, Justinian the Great. Basil, like Justinian, was lucky enough to have inherited an army that was in pretty good shape. The men were well trained and there were some great commanders coming up through the ranks. The navy, though, was in a terrible state, and Basil began a massive shipbuilding programme. When it was complete, Basil surveyed his army and his navy, and he liked what he saw. He decided it was time to see what they were made of. Next time, Basil will find out what they're made of, and Basil's son, or maybe his not-son, Leo, will have some troubles with his wives.
If you enjoy the podcast and would like to give me some feedback or just ask questions, then please contact me by email, mythandhistory at gmail.com, or friend me on Facebook, Paul Vincent Myth and History. Okay, have a great couple of weeks, and I'll speak to you next time.